Let's begin. Welcome everyone to Kabbalah and Coffee. Um, okay, good. This is our second class on our new text called Victory of Light. If you don't have the book, then I've got copies for you. Look at this customer service. Stay can pass. I think we're good this way. Oh, we good this way? Okay, cool. Let's, uh, let's cycle them that way. Beautiful. All right, Victory of Light. We are toward the beginning. And by the way, look at, look at you guys. You guys have the new edition. I have the original. You guys have like a jacket and like a little bit it's like lighter. There's even a, a different uh, image. Look at that. All right. I'll just continue with my old print. That's fine. Don't worry, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'll see. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Inside's very different. Yeah, the inside's got the, got the cloth and the whatnot. Yeah, it's the three-piece cover. Yeah, it's, it's funny because when we were designed, when we were, because I, I worked on these and I, you know, I dealt with the printers, like literally with the actual printer. So for some books that were, like we deemed them, okay, if it's like under 100 pages, so we're not going to go cover, not, we're not going to go jacket, we're just going to go self-cover. Anyway, but now I think they, uh, they just decided to go with it. All right, let's begin. Does everybody remember what we spoke about last week? Oh, good one. Right, two weeks ago. Say it again. The gathering of the rabbis. Good. Good morning. Um, Josh, you got to keep going. Rabbi Waldo. Exactly. Rabbi Waldo. Although the real Waldo, the original Waldo, was much more colorful than us Chabad rabbis. It's pretty much black and white. You can take like an old photo. Yeah. Oh, I was. Wait, wait, wait. If you were what? Couldn't find you. If you were watching the keynote address, I got on the keynote address. Did you? Yeah, I stormed the stage. I no, I'm kidding. I was there. It was the shot of the. You know what? You have 5,000 Chabad rabbis in a room. People are going to be mingling. That's it. It's, it's, it's going to be hard to serve the food because all the guys are like, oh, I haven't seen you in years. Anyway, all right, let's get back to Hanukkah. So two weeks ago, we spoke about a lot of the details of Hanukkah. If you recall, does anybody have the copy yet? Uh, copy still of the, of the hand that I gave out a few weeks ago? Yeah, you got it? Okay, here. You, you mind if I, uh, if I, if I grab a cup? Grab? Okay, here it is. We spoke about when you're supposed to light the menorah. You remember this? Yeah. Well, let's go over it, if you remember it. So when, when are we supposed to light the menorah? And you're without your notes. When are you supposed to light the menorah? From what time? From after? Just after the wayfarers. After those guys with the wood people come. Right, so it has to be after sunset, in other words, it has to be dark outside, and only until there are still people in the street. And when did we say, who are the last people to roam the streets? The Tarmudai. Yeah, or Palmyrians, the Tarmodians. So until, huh? Who that? Um, they were wood sellers. They were wood shoppers and they sold wood. So they, after everyone came home from work and everyone kind of, the streets were quiet, then they went around and saying, oh, hey, anybody need some wood for their homes for the night? Because they realized that people, you know how it is, you know, you think you're all set, you're ready to, to put on the, to turn on the, turn on the fire, as if it's, turn on the fire. They light the fire and, you know, have a nice warm evening, and, ay, we're out of wood. You schlep out now. No, you think Amazon is the first one to figure out how to deliver on customer service? The Tamadais, they were there, they were in the streets, they were selling the wood. But once, but once they left the streets, that was it. You know, they, uh, 
that, that, that things were pretty quiet. So that's the amount of time that you have. You have those hours from sunset, from dusk, from from you know tw- from when it gets dark until the Tarmadoi. Uh, finish walking the streets. Then we spoke about the different ways of lighting. How many candles do you light each night? Remember what we said, there are three levels? What's the basic level of observance for Hanukkah? One light every night for the whole family. That's it. First night, one light. Second night, one light. Third night, one That's it, one light. Done. Have a little candlestick with your little candle action or, or an oil lamp. You light it. You make the blessing. You recite the blessing. You're done. If you're really, you know, you're really super shtadi and you're really fancy schmancy and you really want to do the mitzvah nicely, so what are you going to do? One for, each one for each family member. One for each member of the household. So the first night, so if you have a family of uh, two, you light two every night. If you have a family of four, you light four every night, etc. If you're really super, you know, stoked about the mitzvah, you're, you, can't, you just can't get enough Hanukkah in your life. If you're a pyromaniac, right? <laughs> exactly. If you're like, this Hanukkah is, you know, is, is just the light of my life, then what are you going to do? So then there's a dispute. Now it gets complicated. Not so complicated. Shammai says, the Academy of Shammai says, you start with seven, sorry, you start with eight candles the first night and you go down. Seven, six, seven, three, two, one. Hillel, the Academy of Hillel says, you start with one and you go up to eight. Which means that every night there's there's a different amount of candles or or flames or lamps that are being lit. What's the reason? What's the reason for this dispute? So there's a dispute about why they're, they're arguing in the first place, as we said a few weeks ago. There's two reasons. Either because one is looking at the potential and one is looking at the actual. So Shammai, the Academy of Shammai is saying, let's look at how many days are upcoming. That's eight. Then the second night is how many days are upcoming? Seven. Then six, five, four, three, two, one. Whereas, according to the Academy of Shammai, they're looking at the days that you actually have. So on the first night, which is the first day of Hanukkah, so it's day one. Second night is day two. Third night, day three. So you light per the day that's actually happening. That's one, that's one way of explaining the difference, potential or actual. And I will tell you, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, that when you look throughout Talmudic literature... There are many, many, many disputes, hundreds of disputes between the Academy of Shammai and the Academy of Hillel. Many of them can be distilled and condensed down to this one simple distinction between potential or actual. And there are many scholars, like post-Talmudic scholars, that have gone through dozens of disputes between the two academies and said it all boils down to one way, to one distinction of perspective. Do you look at actual or potential? And that plays itself out in many different areas. We're not going to get into that today because I don't have all the sources. It would be cool to kind of do that, but it's also a little bit off topic. But it's a very cool exploration. But there's another reason that the Talmud gives, and this is the focus of our discourse and specifically what we're going to talk about inside in a moment. The second way of explaining the dispute is as follows. That Shammai, the Academy of Shammai says the reason why you light 8, 7, 6, 7, 4, 3, 2, 1 is because you do, you light the candles just like you, you offer the bulls on Sukkot. What are the bulls on Sukkot? We spoke about this a few weeks ago. The first day of Sukkot they would offer 13 bulls, the second 12, then 11, then 10, 9, 8, 7... And you, count, you add them all up for seven days, right? 13 plus 12 plus 11 plus 10 plus 9 plus 8 plus 7, and you get 70. 70 total, yes. What's the purpose of killing the 
Okay, good. We're going to get into that a little bit soon. We're going to get into that as we talk about the temple in general, which I have some handouts on. We're going to get there momentarily. Hold that question. So they would offer the bulls, and they would offer them in descending order, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7. And so according to this, this way of understanding the dispute, Beit Shammai, the Academy of Shammai is saying, just like you decrease with the number of the offerings each day, so to Hanukkah you decrease with the number of lights, of, of lamps, of flames, lit, kindled each day. Okay. And what does Beit Hillel say? What does Hillel say to that? Hillel says, the Academy of Hillel says, no, you have a good idea, but... You always ascend when it comes to matters of holiness, and you never descend, you never decrease. You always want to increase the stuff that you're doing, you never want to decrease. So you start with one, you don't want to start at the top and work your way down. You want to start at the bottom and work your way up. You want to start with one, and then increase to two, and three, and four. And as we know today, everyone, as far as I know, everyone practices like the Academy of Shammai, which is the first night of Hanukkah, we light one, second, two, Third, three, until you get the eighth day, eighth night of Hanukkah, and you light eight. Good. Also in this text, we spoke about where to place your Hanukkiah, your menorah. We said you should place it where? Remember? By the window. Outside the door, if you can't do it outside, then by the window, but somewhere where other people can see it. And the idea was, what's the idea? You want to get exposure, public exposure, you want to kind of publicize the miracle. Good. What did we say about, so, how many lamps are there on the menorah, on the Hanukkah menorah? We have one behind me. Right, so there's eight of the one size, and then one is higher. Why do we have that one? Remember we said the Talmud gave a good reason? Good. Good. And why don't you want to, so what if I just use a match and then I throw the match away? Why is that not good? What's the problem? Match will, match will. That's the reason. <laughs> it's no good. No, the question is why, why can't I just have these eight candles on the eighth night burning? What's the problem? Am I allowed to use the light for personal stuff? Josh, I, I, I print. You're not allowed to use the light. The mitzvah is to, for the holidays, so you're not supposed to use that light for any practical purpose. For your own, for your own uh, not even nefarious activity, just for your own personal activity. Because a regular, you know, hey, let me read the, uh, the newspaper, but it's a mitzvah. We don't use a mitzvah to, it's like tefillin. You wouldn't use tefillin to, I don't know, like hold something together, like just randomly. As a ter- well, no, no, you, no, you would. If someone's like, you need, if someone's like lo- losing blood, then you use whatever you got, and th- certainly that's that, that is a mitzvah. But you wouldn't use it like randomly. Oh, I'm out of duct tape, but let me use my tefillin to like, like hold the bumper to the. Car. I mean, you just wouldn't. It's not. It's not respectful. So you don't use the same thing as. So we think like, oh, what's the difference? I'll just use. I'll just read by the by the menorah. It's so romantic. Well, no, one second. It's using a mitzvah for. Not a mitzvah purpose, and that's not cool. So therefore, we make sure to have the other candle there burning the whole time, so that we are not uh, using that light. And then, the Talmudic passage that we said a few weeks ago concludes with a question, what is the reason for Hanukkah? Why do we celebrate it in the first place? The Talmud answers, by telling the story of Hanukkah in brief, that there were these Greek, Syrian Greeks, that busted into the temple, and they defiled the oils... And when the Hashmonaim, the Hasmonians, prevailed against them and defeated them, they searched and found only one cruise of oil. And that cruise only had enough oil to last and light the menorah for how many days? One, one day. Miracle happened and it lasted for eight days. 
The next year, they established these days as days of celebration and lighting, kindling the menorah. Now, that's what we talked about a few weeks ago. Thank you. Thank you for refreshing my memory so I can help everyone refresh theirs as well. So today, oh, oh, one second. And then we started the text. Then we started the text. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Of course. Why do you uh, light it from the left to the right? We light it from, hold on. We light it from right to left, actually. Okay. Oh, no, 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 one second. One second. One second. It's complicated. It's the other left. It's the, it's, hold on. You'll see why I'm saying it's complicated. Watch this. Okay, you ready? Steady spaghetti. Watch this. All right. I could have actually just left it there. Notice, but. All right. Okay, ready? Watch this. It's by the window. Wait, wait, wait. It's so. This is so kosher. It's by the window. It's now all the people that are hanging out on the stairs on the fire escape over there will be publicized as far as the miracle, and we're shaking. Okay, you don't have to be nervous. Here's how you do it. You actually start from the right. Now, for the people, it's on the left, but you start on the right. But wait, it gets complicated. First night of Hanukkah, you would put one candle in here. Boom. Second night of Hanukkah, what are you going to do? Good. You do this one and this one. Which one do you light first? The new one. Ah, I told you it's not so easy. So you're lining them up right to wait, you're lining them up right to left. Huh? Wait, wait, no, slow it down. You're you're lining them up right to left, correct? You don't start over here. Right? Think Hebrew. You start over here, you start on the right side, first night, second night, third night, fourth night. You're all, you're you're moving this way. But when you light them, you light that way. You're supposed to set up... Wait. Yes. Now I have to remember. Yes, it does matter. I mean, it's supposed to. It's not like, you know, it's not like the Hanukkah police are going to swoop in and like, take all your presents. It's not like, it's not like that. Um, hold on. What do you do? You set up... We can make that happen. There's an app for that. Amazon.com, they deliver. It's fantastic. Um, I think, I think, I don't know. I can't remember now. i got to look this up again. I think you place them. Well, have you been doing it all? It's been a year. Every, no, every, that's, can you imagine? we got to look this up. We'll, we'll look this up right after. I don't want to Google now because we'll look it up. We'll look it up. No, and Chabad.org's got it. Don't worry about it. Because you know, I'm thinking, because sometimes there's a custom, custom to you reuse the wicks. There's a custom to reuse the wicks. If you have an oil lamp, to re, yeah, it says once, you, once a wick is used once, it's actually better. It burns, the wick burns nicer. Again, the idea, hold on one second, we've got to slow this down. We've got to back it up. We've got to back it up. It's ideal to use oil lamps. Why? Because the mitzvah happened with oil. It's not like they only found enough candles to last. No, it's not. They were using oil. So the oil, they only had enough paraffin to last for one. Or those cool, like, twisted, like those cool, twisted candles. They only had enough twisted. The thing is, Hanukkah is supposed to be the most relaxing. Yes. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not stressful at all. No, 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 it's not complicated. Breaking into a 
Who is? Oh, no, no, no. It's, no. Take it easy. It's easy stuff. Easy stuff. First of all, you can use candles. Candles are kosher. What I'm saying is that if you want to be like vintage retro, you know, like... You want to like do a reenactment style. No, it's nicer. It says that oil... Right. Oil is beautiful. It's really nice. If you, and by the way, it's really easy to do. Can I tell you how easy this is to do? Wait a second. Slow it down. I'm going to tell you how easy it is. They sell now at Judaica Corner. Pre-filled. That's, that's how... Yes. Pre-filled little... With the seal of the high priest. No, I'm kidding about that. It's not a good joke. It's pre- Yes. Yes. <laughs> There's. It's a work in progress. They have pre-filled um, uh, containers, little like little containers, and then they, sometimes they even sell it with like a little menorah. You stack them up. You kind of like either break off the top, or sometimes just like you just. Yeah. Some have a twist off. Some have a break off. Although those are a little bit it's like glass break off. It's never a good idea. Um, or some just have like a rubber top. You just like pop it off. It's got the wick in there. You just. That's what I use. You remember? That I remember. (laughs) By the way, in yeshiva... Alright. I don't know know if everything in yeshiva has to be told, but I'll tell that anyway. In yeshiva, sometimes... You know, there's fabrangans in yeshiva, and you have like empty mashka bottles. You know what a mashka bottle is? Mashka. Mashka is a little chayim. So you you have some extra mashka bottles, so you fill them up mostly with water to the top, and then you put oil. Or any bottle, really. But those are the ones that were around. The glass, like, that could handle... No, the glass. It used to be glass, right? So you fill it up mostly with water. Then you put a little oil, and the oil floats, right? It's an incredible thing of oil. You stick a floating wick in there, and you're good to go. You have your Hanukkah menorah, like, on the, on the cheap. This is like um, hacking the menorah. I'm giving you, like, insider stuff here. Okay, so here's the point. If you want to do oil, it's super simple. You can always add oil. Yeah, but then you have to have pour the oil. That's way too complicated. <laughs> what? I know, that, of course. Every year I say, okay, I'm going to save them, and they always end up not being saved. But anyway. No, of course, you could just buy, they sell also, you could buy eight of those things and just fill them up and put wicks in it, and you're good to go. Or you could buy the pre-fill ones and not have to worry about a thing. Just pop off the top and light it. And you're done. Super easy. But here's the thing. It's a mitzvah. It's very nice. It's a mitzvah too. It's preferred to use the wicks again because it, burn, it says it's said to burn nicer once the wicks are already used. So with that being said, do you use the, the wicks and therefore set it up? I think you set up the new candle first. I'm, I'm like 90% sure that you set them up in the order that you're going to light them. Well, if the, you know, if the third night, so you, you can use the, the wicks from the first two. If you use the disposal ones, they give you 44, 44 pieces. So then you have a new wick every night because you have a new glass tray. You just throw them out after. No, it's, it comes with the wick in. So there are different ways to do it. You can either buy the little, the little glass things and then fill it up with your own oil and then put a floating wick thing in there. You know, they sell those also. Or you can just buy the pre-made things and you make sure you have like a stand for it. You know, knock off the t- pop off the top, and you're good to go. Super simple. That's how I do it. Just a quick note of warning. Um, yes. My father, the combustion engineer, has been involved in lawsuits in regards to uh, oil, not Hanukkah, but in regards to filling oil containers and problems with them. So 
Don't be so cavalier about this. <laughs> right. Well, here's the deal. Here's the deal. These are rabbinically approved and scientifically tested. Now, these are coming from Israel. Hopefully, they have the, uh, the requisite... Um, I just want to know there have been products taken off the market because of the problems with, you know, especially when people add oil... Yeah, oh, so that's the thing also. Right, that's actually... Now I'm thinking, like, why... When you do use it, you know, depending on how the, you know, how the wick goes and how, the, how it's burning, it, sometimes it gets, like, a little, like, a little blackened on the side. Yeah, I am a little bit worried about using it a second time, but using what I've never had an issue of using it for years. So, no, no, you're fine, you're good. Just, I'll tell you what, another word of warning. Oh, yeah, another major word, word of warning. Never leave your menorah unattended. First of all, it's a mitzvah to watch your menorah burn. Not the menorah burn. The the lamps. <laughs> no, it's a mitzvah to watch the la- the flames burn, and uh, you don't do not want to leave any fire unattended. Safety first here. This is, uh, call me Rabbi Ari, the, uh, yeah, that just didn't work out at all, that whole thing. The Bible brought us the wooden menorahs for the kids. Right. It's going to be dangerous because everyone falls asleep in the trip to Bain in the turkey and everyone falls asleep. You know what? We'll, We'll make it work. We'll make it work. I say football always on Hanukkah. I like this new tradition. I like it. I like how we're doing with this. First day of Hanukkah, football. Done. And it's your, your birthday? The 28th. Now we really have to get you a Hanukkah present, slash birthday present, slash Thanksgiving present. That's it. All right. Everyone can donate to the... Uh, all right. The birthday fund. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll raise. All right. So let's let's get back into the text. Let's, let's We're actually going to jump right in. So last time we asked a few questions. We're going to pick it up from these questions. The question was a very simple one. Why in the world, according to the rationale of the Academy of Shammai that the Talmud states, why in the world is Shammai comparing the, the, the Hanukkah flames, the lights of the, the Hanukkah menorah, to the bulls of sukkahs that were offered? It's, what's the connection? It's like, oh, they went in descending order, which, by the way, is a, a biblical decree. So the Torah says 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7. So that's why we do it. But it's like, because... The Sukkot bulls were offered in such a fashion, so too the Hanukkah flames all... What's the connection? What's, so they descended, so this should descend. And then he says, okay, so you're going to tell me, and it says in some mystical texts, that the connection between the two is that they're both eight-day holidays. Sukkot is an eight-day holiday. If you include the Shemini Yatzeret, the, the, the day after the seven days. And, and Hanukkah is an eight-day holiday, as we re- read in the Talmud. So because of that, there's a, there's a natural connection, and therefore, just as one has a decreasing mitzvah, so to the other, according to the Academy of Shammah, have a decreasing mitzvah. Why are they both eight-day holidays? And it says in the mystical text that eight represents a level, a dimension that's above the natural order of things. So why, why do both Sukkot and Hanukkah represent, why are they both um, filled with this theme of a transcendent energy, transcendent divine energy? What's the connection? So these are the questions we asked last time. I just want to make a, a quick comment on that on the concept of eight. Um, this is something that not only the mystics talk about, but even the uh, what we would call maybe more standard or traditional, not traditional, like the non-mystical commentaries are also speaking about this idea that seven is natural and eight represents the supernatural. Um, eight represents something that is beyond the natural ability. So if you would. You know, if you would talk about this on a, on a personal level, you would say seven is your comfort zone, 
Seven is symbolic of that which things that are in your comfort zone. Eight represents the things that are out of your comfort zone. So seven are, the th- are your go-to things. Like, yeah, this is what I do. This is what I'm comfortable with. This is what you know. This is my status quo. That's seven. Eight represents when you push yourself beyond. It's the same same thing is true on a mystical level. Seven represents the energy that flows into the world on a natural day-to-day basis. The natural energy that's that's uh, giving vitality and life into the world. Right, the, that which is in the box, so to speak, is seven. Eight represents the energy that is beyond. It's like a, an extra infusion of energy that kind of breaks the, uh, the bounds of that which is traditionally normal or usual or, or what the world is accustomed to. It's like the side. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. And by the way, I do not believe that it's by coincidence yeah. that that is so. Mm-hmm. This is an, these, are, these are ancient Jewish teachings, not only Kabbalistic, that eight represents the fir- one of the first mitzvot in the Torah. One of the first mitzvot in the Torah. The first one given to Abraham. Which mitzvah did he get? He was old. He was 99 years old. What mitzvah did he get? Circumcision. And oh, one circumcision, the eighth day. Right? The Torah says a child that's a boy that's eight days old, circumcision. It's not. It's not. It's not an accident. The commentators explain. What is it? It's a, what is the idea of it? We call it Brit, right? The Brit. The circumcision is called Brit. Brit Milah. Brit means covenant. It's a covenant. What is a covenant? The covenant means, the true definition of a covenant is that the two parties are pledging, they are committing to each other in a way that transcends rationale, that transcends the ordinary. In other words, if... Let's talk, let's talk about two people. Two people say, okay, hey, let's, let's enter into a relationship. So as long as it makes sense, it'll make sense. When it doesn't make sense, it won't make sense. So that's not a covenant. That's just, in a, that's just there's no, you're not, you don't need a covenant to do that. If it makes sense, then it makes sense. When it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. You don't need this, a huge ceremony slash covenant in order to, to, to put that into effect. A covenant says a peace treaty, nations craft peace treaties. It's not for when things are going well. It's for when things are not going well. We're still not going to fight with each other. In other words, even though it would make sense at this point to pick up arms against each other, we revert back to our peace tree and say, we're not going to do that because we agreed at some point in time that we're not going to do that. In other words, it's a covenant that transcends rationale. Does this make sense? If, if it was just like, let's say, Israel and Egypt. Okay, so it makes sense we're not going to fight. So we need, we need to treat And when it makes sense to fight, so you'll fight. When it makes sense not to fight, you won't fight. But no, they, they, craft, they crafted a peace treaty I'm not going to get political. The bottom line is they crafted a peace treaty saying that even if at some point we might want to fight with each other, we're not going to. This is what marriage is about. Marriage is about a commitment. You make a commitment and you say, even if the moments may get tense, etc., we're still going to stick things through. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the approach that, uh, that, that, that the mystics, and not only the mystics, but the, the commentaries take when, when differentiating between the numbers 7 and 8. Why is 7 symbolic of the natural order? So, there's 7 days of the week. It says that there are 7. Maimonides speaks about, and again, Maimonides is not, was, he's not, not writing mysticism. He writes about 7 heavenly spheres or 7 uh, levels or layers of the cosmos, 7 dimensions of, of, of planetary systems. So seven is symbolic of the natural order of things, eight of the supernatural. And so it says in the mystical text, Hanukkah, supernatural, eight-day holiday. Sukkot, supernatural, eight. So first of all, why is Hanukkah supernatural? He said, well, there's a miracle. Okay, 
Why is Sukkot 8? Sukkot is the festival of the harvest. Right, we build a little hut. Right, we celebrated a few months ago. A month ago. Build a hut. Supernatural. Why is it an eight-day holiday? And what's the connection? And why, if they're connected, do we then, according to the Academy of Shammai, need to light the flames of the menorah, the lamps, in a descending order? Okay. Let's jump inside. So we don't know. Oh, oh we will get to the answers. Well, you know, hold on one second. One second. Let me, let me, let me clarify. Wait, wait, wait. You know, let me. No, it's a good point. Let me map this out. Let me map this out very quickly. Chapter one of victory of uh, victory of light are the questions. Chapter two is the nakuda, is the point of the explanation, the kernel of the explanation that will be in kabbalistic, like very pure kabbalistic terms. From chapters 3 to the end, it's going to break down all of the mystical ideas, like the theoretical conceptual ideas that you would, you know, if you study theoretical Kabbalah, you'll get. But it's going to break it down into a very practical, practical way, you know, practical application. How to live based on this stuff. Okay. That's the map. Let's begin on 24 at the bottom where it says, unlike the Beit HaMikdash, in a moment I'm going to pass out the handout, we're going to get to Erica's question, and we're going to ask more questions of our own. Let's, uh, let's begin. David, you ready? I'm ready. All right, go for it. Another question. The sages instituted the Hanukkah lamps because of the miracle that occurred with the lamps of the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple. Why then does Hanukkah have eight lamps in days when in the Beit HaMikdash... There were seven lamps. Here we go. In order to understand the question properly, we're going to pass around this lovely handout that I put together. Self-proclaimed lovely. There you go. And I want to draw your attention to the depictions. So the, uh, the way it's going around, so keep that at the front because we're going to talk about this side first. The one that shows the menorah. And I, I, I need to tell... <laughs> This is so cool. What's, go, what's going around will hopefully knock your socks off in a good way. Alright? Take a look at this. Take a look. Everyone's got it? It's coming around. It's coming around. It's coming around. Okay. Take a look at this. You see the picture? What, what are these three pictures of? What would you say? Menorahs. Okay, good. Which menorah? Where was this menorah? These are the, this is the temple menorah. This is the temple menorah. Count how many branches there are. You can look at the middle picture. How many branches are there? Three and three, plus one in the middle. The one in the middle is not higher. The one in the middle is not the shamish, not the one in the middle that we have that's higher, that's used only as a servant candle or servant lamp. All seven were part of the lamps, right? Were were lamps. The menorah, in the Torah, the Torah specifies that the menorah that was the candelabra, menorah means candelabra, the candelabra, the menorah that was to be crafted for the tabernacle and for the temple should be one of seven branches. Take a look at the diagram on the left. Can I just a quick yes. Um, did this change in the temple that when they started celebrating Hanukkah? Did they add... Oh, like what? No, 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 no. The, the menorah that we light is the home edition. Right. But it's not like... That's this question here. And it's not like what it's supposed to be replicated. Got it. That's part of the question. But we're going to get there in a second. Hold on, hold on. Before we get there. Take a look at the sketch on the left. Anybody know who, who authored that sketch? It's a hand-drawn sketch. 
Maimonides. This is 850 years old, that sketch. Maimonides, Rambam, the famous physician, Egyptian scholar, physician, physician to the sultan, king, whatever they called him then. So Maimonides, in his works of Jewish law, he decided to, 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 to um, sketch out the menorah. What is different about this menorah? I sound like we're mixing our holidays, Passover and Hanukkah. Why is this menorah, Tzuchazun, bless you, why is this menorah different than the menorahs that you typically see? Of the temple menorah. What else? Besides for the adornment. What else? Look at the branches. Huh? No, that was a hand sketch. He's he's he approximated. The arrows are pointing outward. Give me no, no, give me something more more general. No, don't look at his sketch. No, no give me a general depiction. When have you seen the, the temple menorah? Where have you seen pictures of that? Perhaps. Oh, like it's from like the the, the Arch of Titus. Yeah, the Arch of Titus. So it's, it's they're more thin, right? They're not straight. Branches. Anybody anybody recall the Arch of Titus menorah? Okay, the Arch of Titus is basically when the Romans destroyed the Second Temple. So it was one of their victories, right? They, they, they defeated Judea. They defeated, you know, Israel. So they have in the Arch of Titus in Rome, till today, they have a depiction of the Roman soldiers and the warriors carrying off the temple uh, vessels. And one of them shows, folks, I should have, I should have printed this out. I should add this to the list. Shows them carrying this big candelabra, the menorah. Well, how does a menorah look? Curved branches. You know what I'm talking about, curved branches? You ever see a menorah with curved branches? So it's got one, again, one pole in the center. Then you have one layer of curved, which makes two branches, another one, another two, and then a third to make seven total. Curved. According to Maimonides, according to Rashi and his commentary on the Torah, and according to the Chabad way of understanding history, uh, temple history, the menorah was not curved at all. The menorah was diagonal. Well, there were many candelabras in the temple. There was one menorah, but there were many random candelabras. Why? Because they needed light. It's not like they had like electricity. So, not necessarily... And plus, there's a tradition that all the holy vessels were buried underground in secret tunnels before the Romans came in. Where the Ark is, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, etc. So there's a Jewish tradition, and Maimonides also speaks about it, that all the holy vessels, including the menorah and the Ark, and all of the, they were they were buried on the ground in these secret chambers. So most likely the Romans did not get their hands on the actual menorah. So either they made a, uh, either they replicated, you know, they just put a false menorah, or this is one of the random candelabras that were in the temple. Anyway, the point is, this is the way, according to Maimonides, who is the authority in Jewish law, Rashi in his commentary on the Torah says that they went out, they went out as a, a diagonal, as an, at an angle from the center branch, not curved. By the way, many structural, whatnot, uh, structural engineers, or whatever, have said that based on the weight, based on the gold, it was meant to be made out of pure gold, around candelabra, it wouldn't be able to, just structurally, it wouldn't be sound to make a round in the first place. So, for some reason, diagonal, I guess, works better. Bottom line is, this is the way that it's typically depicted, that Maimonides depicts it, Rashi writes in his commentary, and so the Lubavitcher Rebbe was very much a proponent of this. He said, when you make the public menorahs, make sure to have them 
in the original way, and at least so that you teach people that the one that's the curved menorah is not actually the temple menorah. Yeah. Yes. But it still would be, again, still would be, yeah, it was hammered out of one piece. Now, as you notice there in the picture, also there are these various adornments, cups and flowers. If you look in the middle picture, it talks about the base, the middle branch, bowl for oil, three decorative goblets, knobs, flowers, uh, goblets, knobs, flowers, blah, 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 decorative goblets. Okay, so there's lots of different uh, depictions, lots of different, like, uh, little design features. And depending, you know, there's different, it, it, it can look in a different way depending on the picture. The middle picture is actually the most accurate. If you notice, the picture on the right is more like Maimonides' pictures where the cups are upside down. You notice that? The cups really were facing upward. Maimonides wrote them down. There's a question why he depicted them upside down, but that's another question. So the picture on the, on the right is not really so accurate. The picture in the middle is really the most accurate. So that's how the, whole, the high priest or the priest would kindle the, the menorah, the candelabra. And if you notice there, in the picture on the right, the one against the, back, the, the, the black background, so you'll see that each of the seven um, lamps has a wick that's lit. And if you notice, they're all pointing toward the center. Do you see that? You see that? There's a mitzvah to light them in a way that the wicks were all pointing toward the center. Okay? Everyone see that? And it's not like they, some nights they lit, some afternoons they lit one or two or three. Every day in the temple, they lit all seven. Understand, right? It's not like Hanukkah. Again, this is not, there's two different issues. This is what they did in the temple. Every single day, except for Shabbos, they lit the menorah. That's what they did. They lit the menorah. They lit this candelabra. The Torah talks about the uh, the various decorations that should be on it. So it's 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 by biblical command. The Lubavitcher Rebbe asked the question I mentioned before: How come Maimonides wrote the cups upside down? So he says, based on a, if you want to look at it mystically, you can give a mystical answer. And he says the mystical answer is that the purpose of the menorah is to emanate light outward, not to keep light inside. It was to radiate light outward. That's the purpose of Torah, of a menorah, etc. It's, it's about radiating light outward. So that's best symbolized by a cup, not that holds, not in the holding position, but in the pouring position. Right? A cup that's upright is just keeping the liquid, or keeping the contents for itself. When you turn the cup upside down, that's when the cup is distributing. So that's why Maimonides, in his depiction of the menorah, which the purpose of the menorah was to radiate light outward, is depicting the cups upside down, even though they weren't really crafted like that, because conceptually, spiritually, that's their purpose. So that's... Anyway, so that's just one insight. So, so this is the way the menorah... So again, they lit it every single day. The problem was, when the Greeks came in, they took away the oil. They, or they defiled the oil. They found one jug, only, only enough to fill each of these guys up for, and light them for one night. By the next morning, it, the menorah would be out, and they would be out of luck until another seven days, total of eight days, to get more oil. The miracle happened, and it lasted for eight days. Therefore, we light our own menorahs. Now, you could have a menorah candelabra with one candle, right, as we said, or one per each member of the household, but we do it with a maximum of eight, because we want to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, which we don't really do. So we need to have a candelabra with eight, plus the one helper, so that we don't use the light so we, of, the, of the menorah for our own private use. Therefore, ours ends up looking kind of like this, for candles or with oil lamps for the oil. Now, what he's asking is as follows. If our Hanukkah menorah is meant to be symbolic of the temple menorah, so why is it that our menorah has eight 
working lamps, not including the shamash, not including the helper one. And the temple menorah had seven. Why don't we also have a seven-branch candelabra? What's the obvious answer? And that's the for eight days. So what are you going to do on the eighth day? You know, huh? So, so, right, so you, you, day one through seven, you're fine. Day eight, if you, if you have a menorah that looks like this, you're out of luck. So you need to have a different type of configuration. But then the question is asked, why do you have an eight-day holiday in the first place? The miracle was really, as we said last time, the miracle was only for seven days. Because the first day... The oil was going to last anyway. It wasn't a miracle the first day. They found, a, they found a jug of oil that was going to last for one day, and the miracle was another seven days. So what do you need? An eight-day holiday. And then make a different menorah. Have a, have a little model, a temple menorah in your home. Light it for seven days, and you're done. Unless you say that the miracle of finding the oil in the first place is, warrants, uh, warrants lighting, or maybe... As we said, and it's also one of the footnotes here in footnote 15, maybe you can say that the first night they, they didn't fill it up all the way. They didn't fill up the, the lamps all the way with oil. They only did an eighth of each cup. And it still lasted the whole night until the next morning. You can, have, you can give various explanations for why it's an eight-day holiday. But the bottom line, the, the facts remain the same. Our, the menorahs that we light at home are meant to represent the temple menorah. And yet there's, there's a distinction. The temple menorah is seven and ours is eight. And you can give me all the technical reasons in the world. Because it's an eight-day holiday and for this miracle, that miracle, the other miracle, that's fine. It's wonderful. The bottom line is, our chanukiyas, our menorahs, are meant to be modeled after the temple menorah and yet there's a major distinction. One is seven and one is eight. And already in your mind there should be clicking with the significance. There's one represents nature, one represents... So the, the menorah in the temple is more natural and ours is supernatural. What does it mean? So, okay, we're going to get into these ideas. But in order to get to these ideas, these, the questions kind of open up the mind a little bit to understand, to look a little bit deeper. So, again, it's not like... A, the, the, there's, an, there's an easy answer to this question. Why do our menorahs have eight? Because it's an eight-day holiday. It's an easy, that's the easy answer. The deeper answer is, but why is it eight? Why is it eight? What does that symbolize? What's the message? What's the take-home message? All right? Hey, many. All right, 26... Page 26. Let's continue with more questions. Take it away, David. Another point that requires explanation. The Hanukkah lamps are being compared not to the holiday of Sukkot in general, but to the bulls of Sukkot specifically. It would seem, however, that this comparison is somewhat strained as the Hanukkah lamps relate to the temple menorah, since the Hanukkah lamps commemorate the miracle that occurred with the menorah lamps, while the bulls of Sukkot were offered like all the offerings on the temple altar. Okay, let's pause here. And now I want you to flip the page. And I need to show you what the temple looked like. I, and with, a, with a disclaimer. Disclaimer is as follows. This is a depiction of the second temple toward the end of the second temple era. Which is around the turn of... Well, I don't know, the turn of the century. No, the, um, like the beginning of our count of years. In you know, the, the year 2013, according to the Gregorian calendar. So this is the way the temple looked kind of at the beginning of that whole count. About 2,000 years ago. Okay. There was a tabernacle, a portable sanctuary that the Jews traveled with in the desert. It did not look like this. It was a portable structure. It had the same features and the same parts of the building and the same stuff inside, but it did not look like this. The first temple also did not look like this. The second temple 
They're cute even though they're not my kids. The second temple is, this, this is the depiction of the second temple after there was a major renovation pro, uh, project. Those of you that were with us for Underground Secrets of the Temple Mount, there was a uh, presentation a few months, a few months back. Um, so you got the whole ins and outs of when, which, how this whole thing was built out. But if, it, just to give you a little bit of directional orientation here, bless you. If you look at the top picture for a moment. Look on the left side. The left side, you see that? That's the south. Okay, so if you want, everyone with me? So if you turn the page like this, if you rotate it, okay, that's kind of like south, north, east, west. With that, with that, like that little, um, the roof thing on the south, at the bottom, that's south. The entrances, you see those, you see right, right past that, okay, hold on, let me just make sure everyone sees what I'm talking about. Right over here, you see that like roof structure? Okay, you see those little two things that are sticking out on the plaza right there? Those were the tunnels. Those were the entrance from the tunnels, how you got up to the Temple Mount. From the, sorry, from the Temple Mount to the Temple Plaza. Okay, one second. This whole area is considered to be the Temple Plaza, right here. The inside, that, that building in the middle, that's the actual temple itself. Before we get there, how do you get up to the Temple Plaza? You got, there were steps... And then a tunnel, underground tunnel, and then more steps, and you emerge onto the plaza from those two tunnels. It's kind of like in football when they, co- <laughs> they come out from the tunnels, etc. No, it's tunnels, underground tunnels, and then you they came up. So there were multiple, t- yeah, multiple gates. If you look on this side, this is the east side. The side that we're looking at, we're looking from east to west, right? Everyone with me? We're looking from east to west. There was a gate there to the east, right there in the east. You see right there is the gate. With a stairway, right there. There was an east, there was an entrance on the other side also. That's the western wall is right here. Is, wait, 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 right here. This is the western wall, right there. The back wall. The western, the one in the west, shocking. It's the southwest corner, southwest. This is the western wall. What's the western wall? Right here, this section right here. By the way, the wall continues on that side. But it's not under Jewish uh, autonomy at this point. So, but the wall—that's the western wall right here. Boom. And there's and the south, the south also is there. They have the stairs there, right? I mean, the, the stairs are there. I haven't been there. And we'll just we'll just go with that, right? Yeah. So you can't really go up the tunnels. It's on, huh? Yeah, there's stairs right there. That's down the, on the eastern side. Now, 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 now. Good. T- t- take a look over here. The, the structure in the middle is the actual temple. Notice that the temple was oriented east to west. In other words, in other words, it was a rectangle, if you will. You can't tell from necessarily this shot because it's at a three-quarter angle or whatever it is. But the temple was like a rectangle. Okay? It was like a rectangle. And, the, and it went from kind of the long way, right? It was, it was like this. It was like east to west. Okay. On the western side, you see that taller building? That was the Kodesh and the Kodesh HaKadoshim. That was the Holy and the Holy of Holies. That was a building that unless you were super, you know, connected, i.e. a Kohen, i.e. doing a service, you know, on your, on your uh, rotation, etc., you were not allowed to go in there. There were various sections of the temple. Again, on the plaza, you were, not on, the, you were on the temple mount, but you weren't in the temple as long as you were in the plaza. Once you entered the entrances of that, not the tall building, of, of, the, of the structure of the temple, then you were in the temple. Now, we're going to take an aerial view of the temple. Look at the bottom picture, please. Right, you see that aerial view? Everyone with me? This, this diagram right here, the bottom. 
The left side is which direction? East or west? Who can figure it out? East. The right side is the west. You see on the right side you have that little um, here, this, this guy. This like longer thing and then that thing. That's the building. It's an overhead view, but it's, that's the tall building. If you notice the building, right? If you notice the building has a, right, has a wide front, right? Wide front, and then a smaller thing. Now, if you know, now I want you to, let's focus on that part of the building for a second. You see those stairs that go up? Yeah. Everyone with me? Here, right here, look. Yeah. Stairs, stairs that go up into that building. Again, you couldn't go into the building just, just for fooling around. There you enter the ulam, the antechamber. Okay, Ulam is the antechamber. It's hard to read. It's a little fuzzy, that picture. Yeah, and it's fuzzy. Then you got to the place called the Hegel or the Kodesh. You know, okay, one second, one second. Hold on. Look, you see this area over here? That area? That's the, that's the building. It's, that's in the building. You see there's like a curtain that separates? Or you can't, no, you don't know that it's a curtain. You just see a line that separates that way. The inside there, that square, the smallest square, all the way on the right side, on the west side, that's the Holy of Holies. That's where the high priest, right there. Hey, right here, right here, that guy, right here. That innermost chamber. It's behind the curtain. That innermost chamber is the Holy of Holies with the Ark. It's hard to see there, but there's, it looks like two poles or whatever. That is the Ark. That is the ark. Only one person went in there once a year. On Yom Kippur. The, whole, the high priest on Yom Kippur went into the Holy of Holies to do a service there. That's it. No one else would go in there for anything otherwise. Then outside of that, so that's the Holy of Holies. That's a curtain in front? There was a curtain. There was a curtain. Talk about the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, of course, of course. What do you think they get these? Yeah, of course. <laughs> But there was no wizard. It was more dramatic in there. Once again, anyway, outside, outside of the curtain, outside of the curtain. What do you think everything comes from? Come on, come on, everything. There's not. Okay, look outside of the curtain. Outside of the curtain. In other words, to the left side of the curtain, you have a little bit of a larger area. If you know, it's hard to tell. But look what you see there. Can anybody see? Look at the, look at those little sketches. It's hard to see. What do you see there? Oh, Jeff's got it. Say it loud. A menorah. And Eric also got it. You see the menorah? Three steps. It looks like a Wi-Fi icon. It looks like a little cell phone bar. Oh, I've got full bar service. No, but it's steps. And they depict the menorah curved in this picture. I wasn't going to redraw it. This is, it is what it is. Everyone see it? That's where the menorah was. Below the menorah is a little rectangle. Right? Toward the north. I guess it's the north. That's the shulchan. That's the table where they had bread. They had the showbread. Every week they put out showbread before Shabbos. And it lasted a whole week. And then there's... What's on the... So there's the menorah in the middle. What are those two little things? Uh, Is that what you're asking? What are those two little things? Well, look, I can see the menorah, but next to it is almost... Stairs. The The triangle thing are the stairs. That's the stair, the little stair. This guy right here, this 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 dude, the stair, the stair thing. Everyone with me? Those are the stairs. Those are the stairs that lead up to the menorah. Below, yeah, everyone with me? Okay. Below that is the shulchan, is the table where they had the bread. And to the left of that, you see the little square? That was the golden altar, known as the incense altar or the inner altar. All the same altar. There were two altars. There was the or Mizbeach. There was the big one outside, 
which we'll talk about in a moment. It's huge. And that small one that was made out of pure gold, that was only used for incense. They would put, fi- they would put coals or some, some sort of heating element on it, and then they would put it on for incense every single day. I will every single day the Kohen, the priests, or the priests or the priests on duty would enter into that chamber. Only once a year would they go past the curtain into the innermost Holy of Holies chamber. Okay? So they would light the menorah every day, the showbread they would do once a week, but whatever, at least they were around the area, and the incense they would offer every single day. And the altar here? Pot of gold. <laughs> Is this where they're sacrificing animals? I'm no, 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 no. Only the incense, only the incense on that small altar. Now, make your way out of that building. Well, what are those two little things? You see I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember what those two things are. I don't know. Those look like cell phone towers. I don't, I don't exactly know what that is. No, 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 no. In the picture, in this picture up here, this tall thing is the whole thing. Not the whole thing. Is this whole... That, yeah, from the wide part. The wide, you can see the wide part. It has the spikes on top. I'm just saying, look at the spikes on top of the building. You see it? Everyone with me? On the top, on the top picture. That's, that's, that, uh, that's the front wall. That's the top of that, that's the roof of that uh, the structure. All of that is inside the building. Again, if you didn't have any business in the building, you didn't go there. However, out of the building, you were welcome. Everyone was welcome. What happened out of the building? Well, meander on a little bit toward the left and you see a big square. Can anybody read it? Hamizbeach. That means the Mizbeach. What's a Mizbeach? The altar. That's the altar. That's the big altar. This big, this big guy right here. here right here. Uh, you can't see it. The angle of it is, is blocking it off. Okay, hold on. In the top picture, if you want to know where the altar was, it's between the gate and the building. You can't see, right? You're with me? Just the angle is blocked. It's outside. It's outside. It's under. It's under the it's under the sky. The other stuff was inside. The stuff we just spoke about. The altar, the inner altar, the candelabra, the um, the shulchan, the holy of the, the table, the ark, and the holy of holies. All that was inside the building. Outside, the main thing there was the mizbeach, was the altar, and that's where the animal offerings were brought. That's where the flower offerings were brought. That's where the wine libations were poured, etc. That's where all of the offerings were brought. Right here, that guy. On the top map, it is right in front of this here. Right in front of that, between, but but past that gate. That gate is right here. So you had to go through up the stairs, past that, and then now, who was permitted to go by the altar? Anybody offering a sacrifice? Anybody bring an offering? Which means you did not have to be a kohen. If it's your, you bring an offering, you were allowed to go there at, at that service. Now, you know the question is, what's with the offering? So the first, the first answer is very simply: the Torah, ta- the Torah talks about offerings. So that's a, it's a, it's a it's a mitzvah. On a deeper level, though, the theme we've spoke about many times: the idea of the animal, and, and it gets into understanding the, the the significance of the altar, and and we're going to contrast it with the with the menorah, the altar. The animal offering represents, on a mystical level, on a personal level, taking the inner animal and redirecting its energy. That's what it represents. The animal soul? Yes. Mm-hmm. In other words, the animal 
that otherwise let loose could pull a person, schlep a person in maybe a, an unhealthy direction. The idea is to, to redirect the energies and specifically the bloods and the fats represent, the fats represent, these are the things that were burned. By the way, the, the animals were typically eaten by the one who brought the offering, so it wasn't like they were just destroying. It was part of eating, and which is part of an elevation process. As we've spoken about many times, the idea of eating is, is always elevation no matter what you're eating. So there was an elevation here, and also the idea was they would, they would sprinkle the blood on the altar, um, specifically, and also they would burn the fats as well, parts that w- wouldn't be eaten. Some of the fats represent, according to Kabbalah, the idea that fat represents passion. Sorry, fat represents pleasure, and blood represents passion. The idea is that our passion and our pleasure should be directed toward a higher, holier pursuit, as opposed to... In other words, what should, get, what should excite us? Not NFL football on Sunday afternoons, but doing a mitzvah for someone, helping somebody else out, visiting someone in the hospital. That's what should give us pleasure. That's the fact. And what should we be passionate about? What should we live with? What should we, what, what should we wake up driven to do in the morning? Also study Torah, do a mitzvah, etc. So the, bloods and the, fat, the blood and the fats, these are things that represent the power, the passion and the pleasure directed toward a higher purpose. And so the entire notion of an animal offering was really, it's, it's akin to the concept of eating, you know, the way we eat today. It's no different. And in fact, our eating is meant to be modeled after the temple offering, which means that you're eating, it says that our tables are like altars. When you eat food, it's not, we spoke about this extensively in the last text, when we eat food, it's not just a biological experience, eat, 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 I'm hungry, let me eat. No matter what we're eating. It's about a higher experience. It's about an elevatory experience. We're elevating this experience. The food now is becoming part of me and I will use my energy for something higher than myself. So it's all part of a continuum of elevation and this happened in the greatest, um, vi- the, the greatest visualization or, or manifestation of this was in the temple where they were taking animals and taking other things as well. Breads and, and other, other things that they were doing. And it was all part of this elevatory experience. You didn't... See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Not everyone had to... Most of the offerings were offerings like... um, Depends. There are different types of offerings. There were sin offerings. Like you mess up. Most people ate meat. Yeah. Most people ate. But again, it was in a context. Maybe they wouldn't usually eat meat. But when it it was a sacrifice, it was a mitzvah. It was a holy thing. But it's in a certain context. The context yeah, the is. Context today can be morally and ethically well, challenged. Listen, I, this is not. I, I'm with you. I, I understand what you're saying, and but I understand that, that that the way Kabbalah and Judaism in general looks at the world, it's in other words, it once human beings here. Here's really the general the general idea. When human beings are in charge of morality, things get fuzzy. In general. It's historically. Because you can justify anything, either way. So, Torah says, killing is not good. Killing is not allowed. And life is valuable. And you have to take care of animals. There are dozens of mitzvot that talk about how to care for animals. At the same time, the same Torah with the same author is also telling us that in a certain context, we do offer animals. So, in the, in the, so what I'm saying is that there is 
there is a way of understanding. You know, there's the same God that says that you have to feed your animals before yourself. And you can, ne- and you can never be cruel to animals, etc. And all, and the various, so many mitzvot related to taking care of animals. The same God says, animal offerings, animal sacrifices. So how do you, how do you, how do you make, how do you reconcile the two? You have to understand what, what an animal sacrifice really is. And how it was not at all about hurting animals, not at all about, it was taking the life of an animal. No different, according to Kabbalah, than taking the life of a plant or a vegetable. Everything has life in it. And we're, t- listen. You know, here's the thing, here's the thing. I, I, think, I think it's good. Everyone had, listen, this, this is part of a much broader discussion. That it's, it, I think that, I, I think that to, the best I can do is explain it in the context, and then everyone's going to have, how, how, you, how you feel, yeah. Or whatever you eat, it's not only an animal. Yeah. Right, but whatever, whatever, the, the, whatever it is that you eat, or that, because that's why. And the other part is that you know, I think we, we had debate about this too, about that that you need in order to get you know closer to learning, to have the have the brain power to do something. Yeah, there was a Talmudic sage that said, before I ate whatever it was, the meat, I couldn't. Yeah, I didn't have that clarity. Right. But, and, and then also, was this, and, and before, you know, the sin of Adam and Eve, we're all vegetarians. Before Noah, even. Noah. Until after the flood, yeah. Alright, so this is, this is what, what happened on the, on the outer altar. The outer altar is where the animal sacrifices were brought, as well as other offerings. So that is depicted, as you see, in the big square. There was also, you see on the top of that, there's like a rectangle. That was the ramp. There was a ramp that led up to it. It was a very tall and big structure. Um, there was always fire burning on it. And uh, that's pretty much what happened in that area, in that part of the temple. Now, these vessels, every, every vessel, if it was a vessel, every component of the temple represented something else. Um, you know, the altar is said to represent the idea of sacrifice. Not said, I mean, it represents the idea of sacrifice of giving up something that's, uh, that's valuable, something that's meaningful to you. If you want to enter the holy, the holy space, if you want to enter into a holy relationship, intimate relationship with God, the message is, what are you willing to give up? In any relationship, right? Parents, if you want to be a good parent, you're going to have to be willing to give up of your time, of your energy, of your sleep, right? There's a lot of stuff you have to give up. You want to enter into a relationship with another human being, you're going to have to give up. Right, it's, it's about sacrifice, and today I think sacrifice is a dirty word because it's it's we live in a society where it's okay. What do I get out of this? What do I get out of life? It's like okay, me, me, me. But Judaism, the idea of sacrifice is a big theme. Sacrifice. So like sacrificing the sun, God asked the, the sun. Yeah, okay, that's that's also a difficult story to understand. But 
it's more, I, I would say it's more the context of, and, 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 uh, to personalize it, to make it real. It's like, okay, if something is really meaningful to me, how do you know when something's really valuable? When you're willing to sacrifice for it. In other words, if something is like, yeah, I like it, but you know, when things get tough, I'm just going to discard it. You didn't sacrifice for it, so it's, it doesn't really mean that much to you. Let me give you a good example. Thank you, yes. When my daughter, I've, nicotine was my drug of choice. I loved my cigarettes. When my daughter was about four years old, I, I saw her mimicking me. And my former husband also smoked some. And I remembered mimicking my parents who both smoked. I did not want my children to smoke, and I realized that the only way was for us to stop smoking. It's the hardest thing I ever did. Mm. It was awful. It was horrible. <laughs> That's a sacrifice. Right. Um, but it was for something that was, was really... For something that was more important than me. Right. So the, so the altar represents, right? The altar, what is the Mizbeach? What does the altar represent? The concept of sacrifice. And how do you, in other words, if you're moving, because you would enter, typically you would enter the temple building from east to west. If you want to make your way toward the west, toward the holy space, you want to enter into a true relationship. In other words, there's something really valuable and meaningful. What do you have to come to? What do you hit first or before you get into that real sacred sac, a place of sacrifice? In order to really enter into a, a real deep relationship, in other words, have that, have that depth of connection, the question is, what are you willing to give up? If you say, well, I love you, but when things are difficult, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm really, I'm just, you know, sorry, I can't do it, then the relationship is not exactly the way it uh, is not the strongest. So that's what the altar represents. It represents sacrifice. And as I mentioned before, what does it represent sacrifice of? In our relation with God, some of our more base characteristics, right? Uh, we have, each of us comes pre-programmed with um, what we would call our set of base characteristics. Some of us are lazy, some of us get angry easy, some of us get are jealous, some of us have anxiety, whatever it is. We have... We, or in <laughs> a combination. So, right, so we all come pre-programmed with our set of stuff. And the idea is, what are we willing to work on, to really work on, to really to break ourselves, to really squeeze to the best of our ability. Sometimes, we're, are we going to conquer everything that we have? No. But what are we willing to work on, to put in the effort to work on at least, to, to, try, to, to try to be a better person, more of a mensch, and be in a closer relationship with God. I say, you know, I want to be in a relationship with God, but I really don't have time because of all this other stuff going on. So it's, it's, it's about making the time, it's about setting aside time, it's about giving once, and that's the idea of the animal sacrifices, the, sacrificing the animal soul, you know, training the inner animal, being more of a mensch, etc. All of these are themes that are depicted or that are evoked by the altar. Now, the al- that's what the altar represents. In Kabbalah, the altar represents the sphera, the, the energy of Malchut. Malchut is the lowest of the ten spherot, right? You have the three intellectual spherot, the three intellectual powers, then you have the seven emotional, the lowest one is Malchut. Malchut, here, there are four worlds, four spiritual worlds. The Malchut is the lowest dimension, the lowest level of, of the worlds, right? We've spoken about this many times. It's the Malchut of the lowest, uh, uh, it's the lowest level of, of that given world, the Malchut of that, that descends into the next world. We've also talked about it, correct? In other words, the, the, the bottom of one dimension becomes the top of the next dimension. So, Malchut means, means king. 
Malchut, though, is the lowest of that world. For the, Malchut means king, royalty, kingship. Malchut, like a melech is a king. Malchut means royalty, kingship. But it's the lowest dimension. But not for the next level. For the one below it, it's the king. It's the top. So every, the bottom of one, it's like a chain. Think of a ch- very simple example. Think of a chain, inter- links in a chain. You hold it like this, vertically, up and, up and down. So the bottom, the bottom part of one link forms the top, or is connected at the top of the one below it. So Malchut is the energy that descends into the next world itself. Malchut represents the part of us that goes into dangerous territory. You with me? Malchut represents, just like the Malchut of every world, is that which goes into the world below it. So in the spiritual worlds, right? In the spiritual worlds, you would have the Malchut of, let's say, the world of emanation going into the world of creation, which is a a big descent from where it is. Same thing is true with the human being. The Malchut of the human being is the idea that is that part of the person that descends into dangerous territory. And that represents, again, our base characteristics, our natural traits that need to be refined a little bit. So how do we do it? We, we need a little sacrifice. But it's sacrificing, it's working with the Malchut, it's working with that lowest dimension of ourselves. The part that's the most vulnerable, susceptible, it's the part of us that most descends into dangerous territory that we're working on as we, as we bring these offerings of ourselves to get closer to God, um, represented by the altar. What is the menorah? So that's what the altar represents. The altar represents working with the parts of us that are not so clean and sparkly. Not so bright. It's working with the darker elements of our personality. It's working with the malchut. It's working with the lowest dimensions of ourselves to refine them and to bring them up as an offering to God. That's, that's the altar. What's the menorah? Menorah is not outside the holy place. So that's why it's outside the holy space. It's not holy yet. You're trying to get to a space of holiness. You're not inside the holy building yet. On the way to get there, you have to take the lowest parts, your lowest common denominator, whatever, your lowest, the lowest parts of yourself, and start working on them. Refining them, elevating them, making them more to a match, getting, you know, getting them more in shape, if you will. But then you enter into the holy space. And in the holy space, you have various things. You have another altar for incense. Aromatic, it's not, it's, it's, it's a fragrance. It says that the nose, scent, is the most spiritual of the senses, the five senses. Kabbalah says that the neshama, the soul, is found in scent. Scent is the, is the holiest of the senses. It's the most refined. That's why... Is that, is that true? Interesting. That's why also Havdalah... To revive our spirits after Shabbos. Shabbos is a spiritual high. After Shabbat, darkness descends. And now it's the regular... Oh, I stopped working for 25 hours. Thank God. Now back to the grind. You can feel a little bit depressed. But what do we do? Smell spices. Gets the soul back. Gets the soul uh, kicking. How do you revive a person that's faint? Through the faculty. You don't show them a nice shiny picture. right? You, how, do you, how do you revive them? Smelling salts, right? It's through the faculty of smell that revives the soul. Scent is considered the most spiritual. So the incense altar is there, scent. And then you have the showbread with the bread. Then you have the menorah. Kabbalah says, what is the menorah? The menorah is light. What is light? Light represents 
illumination and instruction and guidance and teaching and it represents this, this notion that when you're in a space of holiness you have clarity of vision you know where you're going you know what your purpose is it's that clarity it's a beautiful gift of clarity right? imagine if we had clarity in our lives we knew exactly where we needed to be and what we needed to do in every given situation Oy, life would be a machaya when you're in the space of holiness when you're in that space and when you study Torah, etc., you have a little bit more clarity, you have a little bit more menorah. It says the menorah is the or light, and aura is Torah, light is Torah. It's all the same instruction, light, radiance, illumination. The menorah represents this clarity. Could you find two vessels? Again, vessels is what we, it's the translation of what they're called in Hebrew, kalim. But it means, well, what's a vessel? Vessel would be the temple stuff. Stuff that was in the temple. Could you find two vessels that are more different? The altar represents a person that's far from holiness. The altar represents somebody who still has uh, a lot of stuff to work, or some, or a lot, or whatever, still working on this stuff, bringing those sacrifices, trying to get closer, taming the inner animal, all of that stuff, working on themselves so they can, they can get to a space of holiness. And what does the menorah represent? The light, the clarity, that clarity of vision. Represents someone who's pretty much already there, and in our own way, we have opportunities to be there, but it represents a, a totally different work or different uh, movement. One is working on your, inner, on your base character. One is really taming your inner animal. And the other one, let's say, studying Torah and gaining insight and, and, and wisdom and, and, and guidance and illumination. Two totally different vessels. Yeah, it's like a before, right. And, and the truth is, they're not mutually exclusive because we always, we need to study Torah and get in the clarity even as we're working on the, on the animal. It's not like you can only do that once you have that. It's not so sequential, even though we're, I'm framing it a little bit sequentially, but that's really the only to, to highlight the difference. Why, why am I highlighting? And, and again, it's different also in where it's placed. One is outside the place of holiness and one is inside the space of holiness. Why, am I, why are we mentioning all this? Because the Talmud says... The Beit Shammai, the Academy of Shammai says, how do you light the menorah? Descending. Why do you light it descending? Because that's how they offered the bulls of Sukkot. How can you compare the two services? One is animal offerings on the altar, and the other one is illumination. In the... How are you drawing a parallel? They're two totally different services. One is with the altar, the outer altar, with animals, refining yourself, working on your base characters. That's what one work is. And there you go, descending order. And the other one is illumination. In the holy space, with the menorah, with the Torah. It's a totally different service. So, what is Shammai saying? What's the kind of Shammai saying? You light the menorah descending just like you offered the animals descending. What does one do the other? Two totally different vessels, totally different locations, two totally different services. They represent two totally different activities. Make sense? Okay. Let's read all of this. is found in the next few lines. Alright? David, take it away, please. 26. Please read where it says now. Now, the menorah and altar are two different vessels, especially as they're explained in Kabbalah and Hasidus. Which I just explained. And the lamps and offerings are two different services. So much so that Yours, the lamps, is greater than theirs, the offerings, and will never cease. What then is the relationship between the Hanukkah lamps and the Pharisees? What's the parallel? The vessels were different vessels. One was an altar and one was a menorah. They're diff- and, and he doesn't say here, they're different locations. And they represent different services. Not only physically were they, one was animals and one was oil. 
they represent the different things. One is working on yourself, working on your inner animal. One represents malchus. The other one, malchut. One represents chesed. Uh, one represents a totally different type of uh, type of work. Ultimately, everything's related. I'm with you. Ultimately, they're all part of the same temple. They're all part of. They're all part of what we need to do to get, you know, to get to get a little closer. We need to work on our animal, and we need to study Torah and gain the insight and get the illumination and have that clarity. But but they're, they're, it's different work. It's different work. Say it again. No, no, I understand. I, I said. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. So on one level, it doesn't matter, but on another level, it's not a natural. You wouldn't say, "Well, let's one mirrors the other." It's not like a natural uh, comparison because they each represent their own their own inner world. We both we have to do both, and both are part of the same. They're all part of the same goal and the same destination, etc. But but specifically, they each contain their own universe. They're, are their own in, they're, they're in their own universe. Mystically, the way we explain it in, 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 on a personal level, in our own spiritual service, etc., our own uh, you know, personal uh, elevation experience, each one represents something unique and distinct. And so the question is, what, is, what are the ties that bind these two ideas? What are the ties that bind it? To the point that Beit Shammai says, the Kenan Beit Shammai says, you know how you light the menorah? You have to copy, you have to mimic the way you, off, you, brought, you brought the offerings on Sukkot. What does one do the other? Sandy, you're not... Uh, you don't look happy. Yeah, no, I'm so happy. I don't even know how to formulate the question. I mean, it seems to me that they're... Yes. Okay. Ironically enough, I do remember the dancing shirtless man class. <laughs> there was a class on dancing shirtless man. Okay. And is that one on the internet? All that one for class that was recorded. It wasn't me. It was an, it's, an, it's a viral video. It's about how to create followers. Lead, yeah. And, and, and how to create a path that others can, can follow. follow. Yeah. So obviously, there's ways that we can do this. Through lots of other disciplines and other practices, it's not that one negates the other. It's just that in order to get the benefit of this, you know, become I hate the term orthodox, but you know, but but to follow a certain path of this discipline, and so it doesn't negate another discipline. It just means that to take this path, this form, this exercise in spiritual growth. Need to do these exercises, right? But the, I think, but I think the main, the central point here that he's that he's uh, that he's expressing and he's asking is that when you look at these two disciplines, if you will, like what what is the altar work and what is the menorah work? They're two different works, two different activities. Right. So what's the na- what's the connection? Academy Shaman says because you did one one way, you should do the other the, the other the same way. It's not. 
different things. I mean, if you're talking about two things in the same space, let's say, maybe there's an equivalency. Just like uh, the incense, you did this, so to the menorah you should do that. That makes sense, they're both in the same area. But here you have like totally different spaces, totally different realities. So obviously there is a connection, and we're going to get there, but... No, because we're all focusing now on, on, on Shammai, that one opinion that says eight to that says eight to one. We're not accepting it as the way we, but we're saying according to that explanation, eight to one. Well, what's the equivalency? You're saying eight to one because the uh, the bulls offered on Sukkot. First of all, what does Sukkot have to do with this? What do the bulls have to do with it? And what does the altar have to do with the menorah? Two totally different things. All right. Final paragraph. We're going to conclude chapter one with this. Alright, the last question, and again, chapter 1 is all the questions. Chapter 2 is going to be the mystical interpretation. Chapter 3 and beyond is going to be the practical application of all of this. So let's do Why Sunset, um, 28. David? We must also understand why it's mitzvah that of the Hanukkah lamp is from uh, when the sun sets. The anomaly here is well known. The Hamikdash lamps were kindled from... Plag Hamincha. An hour and a quarter before sunset. And we're going to get into these calculations in a moment. But just know that the temple here, this menorah right here, this one, this menorah was lit before sunset. This was lit late afternoon. Before, it had to be lit before sunset. An hour and a quarter before sunset it was lit. Okay, continue. Um, if the Hanukkah lamps were established because of the miracle that involved the Beit HaMikdash lamps, as previously noted, and especially since everything that the sages established... They established it similar to the biblical. It would seem appropriate that their kindling time would be the same as that of the Mikdash lamps. Why then is its mitzvah specifically from when the sun sets? Everyone understand that question? Yeah, that reason why we light a Hanukkah menorah is because of the mitzvah of the miracle, of the oil that happened in, in this with this menorah. When did they, when did they light the menorah in the temple? During the day when it was still light outside. They lit it in the last hour and a quarter before sunset. What do we do? We only start after sunset. Why? If, they, if the reason why we light our Hanukkah, our menorahs, is to remember the miracle that happened with the temple menorah, so light it at the same time. We ask the question, why is it different? Why is it eight lamps versus seven? That's one question. Now it's another question, the question of timing. What We asked before a question of structure. Why is the structure of the menorah, why is the design different? That's one question. Another, now the question is, why is the timing different? We should also light it like they did in the temple an hour and a quarter before sunset. Make sense? You've got another thing there where numerologically it adds up to four. You're, your hour and a quarter yeah. adds up to four. Because if you do it, add that, you're 60 and you're 25, and then add that together, you know, you're ending, then it becomes a four. Sorry. <laughs> um, so if you add 60 and 25... Yeah. Would you say an hour and a quarter? Oh, then I really messed up. Let me make it even more confusing. You ready? Let me make it more confusing. And this is in the footnotes. We, we actually did a good job on, on, on writing these footnotes. Um, here's, here's the deal. A Jewish hour is not 60 minutes. Yes. Okay, good. Yes. <laughs> We just, I just said that. We just went there. A Jewish hour is not 60 minutes. And how much is it? How much is it? Depends. Oh. Maybe less because nobody ever shows up on time. 
That's why, because the hours never know. It's like, oh, meet me, meet me uh, at four o'clock. Which four o'clock? Your four o'clock, my four o'clock. Ah, four ish. Here's the deal. How, how do you get the hour? It's all clearly explained in the footnote, but I'll tell it to you outside. You take the amount of daylight hours and you divide them by twelve. Did I get that right? Does that make sense? Yeah, kind of. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Ready, ready, ready? Listen, listen. Here's how it works. Here's how it works. Hold on. Hold on. Is you divide by 12, right? An hour in Jewish law means one-twelfth of the daylight hours. In the summer, this can be up to 75 minutes, and in the winter, it can be as little as 45 minutes. In, in the winter, one second, in the winter, if the sun is only shining for nine hours, in the winter, not because you change the time, forget about the time. No, it's nothing to do with the time. From sunrise to sunset, it's, it's not 12 hours. Depends. Depends on the season. In the winter, sunrise can be 7 o'clock, and sunset can be 5. How many hours is that? 10. Right? Let's say sunrise is 7 and sunset is 5. 10 hours of daylight. So every hour is less than 60 minutes. Because you take those 10 hours, you divide it by 12. And then what's that? I have no idea at this point. Is that a daylight savings time? No, 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 no. We're not saving nothing. Wait, who's with me on this? It makes sense to the time before electricity. Half the day was going to be like when you function. You have to divide, a Jewish law, you divide the daylight hours into 12 sections. So if you have 10 hours to divide into 12 sections, each hour is not going to be 60 minutes because you only have 10 of those. You only have 600 minutes. Did I, is that correct? It doesn't even make sense. 6,000. Huh? 50 minutes is an hour. So 50 minutes would be an hour. Why is this? It's way too complicated. Did the oil really burn for... All right, hold on, hold on. Yes. No, it burned for eight 24-hour segments. Yeah, no, 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 it burned. Hold on one second. Hold on, yeah, it for sure, sure did. Hold on, the conspiracy theory here. No. Again, if there are 10 hours of daylight, if there are 10 hours of daylight, so then there's something called the shows manus. The proportional hour is only 50 minutes, right? That's what we're coming to, 50 or so. 55 minutes is a Jew, is it now a Jewish hour? Why is this relevant? An hour and a quarter before sunset is an hour and a quarter, not 75 minutes, but it's one segment and a quarter of that segment. So 50 minutes plus a quarter of 50, which is 12 and a half. So it would really be 62 and a half minutes. Who's with me? Yes, because the night, because you count the night. You count the night. The night will be 14 hours. The, look, during the winter, one second. During the winter, the night, let's say, the daylight for 10 hours, it's light for 10 hours, and it's dark for 14 hours. You still have 24 hours. But you count daylight hours for, Jew, for the purpose of Jewish law, for figuring out when to pray and when to do this. You can only do certain things during the day. You take those hours, divide them by 12, you figure out how many, divide it by 60 or whatever, and then you figure or not, whatever. Why 12? Because it says that the angels, there are 12 shifts during the day of angels, etc. So there's, the number 12 is significant. 
So you divide it by 12, and you get your amount of minutes, and you're good to go. If we did, should we do quick math? Quick math here? Here. No, in the winter. In the summer, it's the opposite. In the summer, it could be light for 14 hours and dark for only 10. One second, one second. Here, here. we're going to do, we're going to do, we're do a quick demonstration, then we're going to close it out. Ready? If there are 10 hours, so there's 60 minutes, right? 60 times 10 is? 600 minutes. So now you have 600 minutes of daylight. Divided by 12 equals 50. Make sense? 50 minute hours. Let's say you... Right, or just, that's right. Fifty minute Maybe. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Hold on. Now let's say the day was four. Let's say the fourteen hours of daylight. So you do fourteen. And again, why are we doing times sixty? Because there's fourteen of of our hours, the typical hours. Fourteen times sixty equals. Now there are eight hundred forty minutes in your day. But you still have to divide it by 12 because there's only 12 proportion hours. Divided by 12 equals 70. Now your, minute, now your hour is 70 minutes. So if you do an hour and a quarter before sunset, it's one, one of these hours plus a quarter. So if you, it's a 70 minute hour. So it's 70 plus a quarter of 70. What's 70 divided by 4? Plus 17. Plus 70. 87 it was December. It was, it was this time of year. It was Kislev. So it was probably shorter days. doesn't make a difference because it burned through the night anyway. It burned through the after... Here's the point. Here's the point. It burned for the, for the amount of days. It burned for 24-hour segments eight time, times eight. Here's the bottom line. Bottom line is the temple menorah was lit an hour and a quarter of these proportional hours before sunset. And in the an hour menorahs we light... After sunset, the question is why? If we're indeed commemorating and marking the temple's menorah, so why don't we light it at the same time while it's the light? Why do we only light it after dark? And of course, this will lead us into understanding that the purpose of the Hanukkah, of Hanukkah lights, maybe as opposed to the, the, the temple's lights, to illuminate darkness specifically, as opposed to what, uh, what the purpose was in the temple. We're going to get to some unique... Not unique. We're going to get to some very deep ideas about what the whole purpose of the Hanukkah miracle was and the purpose of our celebration of Hanukkah and our menorahs, etc. All that is coming up in the next few weeks.